It's the Loose Filter Podcast, and with you are your co-hosts, Stuart Sims and Anthony Campolo. We hope you are having a great holiday break, pointing to a very happy New Year's celebration. It's my favorite holiday. And uh, if you uh, are a person who celebrates Christmas, hope you had a terrific day. So for this episode, we want to talk about the best of 2018 and some uh, other interesting things that we found. Indeed. We're going to just not literally, we're not going to make our own list of what we think is the best music of 2018. Uh, What we are going to do is mention uh, just a few comprehensive print journalism, online journalism, best of lists that we think are really good. Yep. Media uh, loves lists. Yeah, There's they love lists. And I love lists too, actually. And so now we need lists of lists. So we'll give you a list of lists. But this one, just a, just a few of them as a starting point for yourself to uh, dive into what you may have missed and uh, what new interesting things you may find. It's a good time. That's, I mean, lots of folks use them for that. That's why we love them. I especially like them because... Once you have a handful, you can start to see commonalities, which work start to appear over and over and over again. You see, you know, what were the the critics into? Maybe a little different from what you were into or what the popular culture was into, but usually kind of clusters together around a, a set of albums. And then uh, following that, we uh, are going to mention just a few artists and, and tracks and recordings that we found especially interesting uh, that we haven't already talked about this year. Yeah, there's definitely a handful of artists that were all over the top list that we've been praising all year. So there's a fair amount of agreement there. And now we've gone over and found some new ones that we maybe didn't discover the first time around that we think are worth checking out. We are saying, though, the Loose Filter podcast, colon, consistently ahead of the curve. (laughs) Yeah. Janelle Monet seemed to top almost everyone's list, and we have been well. We talked about her years forever. ago, yeah, yeah, for yeah sure. even before I mean, this gosh. album, yeah. Uh, so, uh, not that that's any credit to us; all credit uh, to the artist. We're just for, paying for attention. <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just hopefully paying attention. So, so before we get to that, though, there are a couple interesting things that that are happening here, right around the turn of the year, into this year, into next year, that I thought it might be good to talk about and and point out. I should mention that. Uh, you can find us online at loosefilter.com or soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. You can find the podcast feed on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere you can do an RSS subscription. And you can email us any feedback, questions, comments, ideas, whatever uh, that you may want to share, loosefilter at gmail.com. For all of the articles and lists that we're mentioning, like we do with every week's episode with the playlist. So any music that we talk about, uh, certainly any music that we excerpt uh, on the podcast, we list and link to on that episode's uh, entry, that post that week on the website at loosefilter.com. For this uh, episode, we'll link to uh, the couple of articles we're going to talk about, the lists that we mention. Uh, and anything else we think that that might be salient. So any of this that we uh, talk about that you find especially interesting, know that you can go to the website and uh, find the citation and the link and pursue it further on your own, which we absolutely encourage you to do. Yeah. There's an article that was just published, I think, this morning online. I caught it this morning. It's the January 2019 issue of Smithsonian Magazine. 
by Glenn Fleischman, and he is drawing attention to the fact, and I think this is a great and timely thing to start paying attention to, and something we will be paying attention to on a regular basis going forward, that for the first time in 20 years since 1998, on January 1st, 2019, new copyrighted works in the United States will be entering the public domain. Why does that matter? I know I could hear everybody, all of you listening, I could hear back through the uh, the line here, wow, you're kidding, Whoa. your astonishment. Whereas the one copyright <laughs> nerd actually just had his actually mind did, blown. Just actually did, if he wasn't tracking, he or she wasn't tracking, they, they had their mind blown, right? Uh what happened in 1998, and if you know the story, then uh, you know you you know the story. But if you don't, the very brief version is: uh, copyright and copyright law is a pernicious problem in the United States, and Disney has long led very successful lobbying efforts to extend uh, intellectual property and copyright uh, rights and ownership well beyond. Uh, time limits that we maybe originally conceived when these laws were created. Yeah, the old joke you may have heard is, how old is copyright? As old as Mickey Mouse is. Right, that's, and that's how much it'll keep extending. So what was happening up until 1998 is that uh, there was a window of time uh, at which all copyrighted works enter the public domain, meaning no one owns them anymore. You can use them and, and do whatever you want to with them, show them. Uh, remake them, whatever, free of charge. So not only reproduce, but then create new works with the characters Derivative works, everything, anything. It's public domain. we all consider general fan art for the most part. Exactly. Anything, actually, in the early days of the internet, you know, when fan art really started taking off in that medium, uh, copyright owners tried to stop it and stifle it before they realized it was reinforcing getting more it's actually a good thing right right and it's only i right you'll cross the threshold really now it seems when you try to directly monetize uh someone else's content without permission or compensating them uh which to me seems like a fair practice the law hasn't caught up to it though which is our point here in this bit because uh disney led a successful lobbying effort like i said in this instance to extend copyright 20 more years in 1998. So everything in the beginning of 1999 that was going to start going in the public domain didn't. And at that point, it was uh, works up until 1922 in 1998 became public domain, right? 65 years and 60, what is it? 66, whatever that is. Uh, um, And so we were going to get into sound film, into everything, you know, that's like what you get. 1923, yeah. You get to a lot of, you know, radio shows, I would imagine, too. Just all sorts of stuff, all sorts of content, because that would be the the booming 20s. So a huge explosion of, of entertainment and culture leading out of that. And also, in terms of the new media, art making in the new media, it's the explosion of modernism and modernist practice. Right. So mm-hmm. culturally, like, every year is significant. Mm-hmm. Because the, the 20s and early 30s, that's a white, hot period of time culturally. Uh, and, and influential in terms of influence uh, uh, is significant. Yeah, the so, era. so we pressed the pause button right as the internet, as uh, uh, Mr. Fleischman very, uh, I think, smartly points out in his article. We pressed the pause button in 1998, just as the nascent internet was starting to take off and we were getting Google and so on, when uh, culture making by all of us and sharing was really taking on new forms and, and a level and, and greater accessibility scale yeah. and so on that we have never seen. And that's continued apace. 
but it's like the world popular culture sort of stopped in 1922 almost. <laughs> Uh, when you look at it. So on January 1st, we're going to get a bunch of stuff from 1923. Well, what's significant from 1923, you might wonder. The biggest one is the Robert Frost poem, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, as an example of uh, Cecil B. DeMille, The Ten Commandments, his epic biblical uh, uh, film, one of his epic, uh, you know, biblical film films, The Ten Commandments, uh, things like that. I mean, significant works that we do know that you think 1923, what do I know from then? Actually, you, more than you think, because again, very influential. Yeah, and it opens up a lot in terms of our understanding of old Hollywood history and how there was uh, an entirely different way of putting together productions and artistic works being created that was significantly larger scale and involved you know, thousands of extras and huge sets and props and Cecil B. DeMille being one of the the architects of that style. So it's going to be really great for people who've been growing up with the internet and have such a thirst for history and for artistic history and getting access to all of this stuff. It's uh, We're finally going to be able to start uh, using our roots and playing with our roots in some media in that sense, mm-hmm. creative media. Uh, there's a really funny anecdote that this uh, article closes with uh, in in uh, Smithsonian Magazine that I knew just because it affects my musical world as a, a, a university musician and teacher and a band conductor. This is a conductor, American composer and conductor, Eric Whitaker, who has written a substantial amount of choral music and went ensemble music and some orchestral music operas. Very prolific, very um, uh, performed uh, quite a lot all over the world. In 1999, was commissioned to write a choral work and fell right into this hole. The story just epitomizes how creative artists, like, right away fell into this gap. So uh, the Frost poem that I mentioned uh, was written, uh, was copyrighted 1923. Should have, according to previous practice, 1999, come into the public domain. So Eric Whitaker commissioned to write a setting for choir, uh, uh, and he chose this Robert Frost poem, very famous, which he thought should be in the public domain. So he was working off of the old rules, not realizing he was, that And this was a last-minute extension, changed. and okay. it kind of been pushed through, and there wasn't a lot of publicity on it right away. So he thought it was in the public domain because he's like, hey, wait, oh, I can use, oh, I can use this Robert Frost poem. It's 1923, it's 1999. So he composes the whole piece based around the text. And as he said, the piece was meant to illuminate the poem. I mean, the whole piece was about the poem. It wasn't just that he was using the poem as yeah, text. Yeah, you can just piece, take the, you know? the music and then, oh, just set it some new words. Didn't well, it might work like that. As he finished the piece and he went to, to publish it, he self published, the Robert Frost estate blocked his use. They did not give permission. He found out he needed to get permission. He tried to get permission and they denied it. At the last minute, like a month before, I don't remember the details. I have to look up mm-hmm. all the details. But. He ended up uh, asking a poet to write original text, but that it had to fit the 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 rhyme scheme meter. I wonder of if the, that poet tried the to of the frost. He did had they try to. to allude to it at all, or did he try and write something no, totally it new? It was totally. It's the yeah. piece is called Sleep. I would try and subvert that kind of. If I was the writer. <laughs> the piece is called Sleep. Well, he you know you just want he wanted to honor Eric's piece and it's Eric's work, but. Uh, uh, he had to match not just like, you know, Frost's poem in a lot of ways, but the the prosody, the way that Whitaker set that text, mm-hmm. because it's sung, uh, the uh, sung piece, uh, to his musical gestures. And so it's a weird 
shadow poem if you put the text side by side with the frost poem. That's a very unique way for a piece to be constructed, that's for right. sure. And uh, uh, Fleischman, the author of the Smithsonian Magazine article, did contact Whitaker uh, about it for a comment. And he said, and he kind of laughs at this point, like, oh, yeah, I mean, I sure did fall in that hole when that extension happened. And it caught me off guard because I was, you know, almost finished with this piece. And uh, he's actually seriously considering restoring the original piece now that he can, now that the text is in public domain. He can finally finish the piece the way he imagined it in the first That's pretty cool. He gets to finally bring it together 20 years later. So like you said, who knows what we're we're going to see when Mm -hmm. our living uh, creative uh, artists get get their hands on our our roots and material stuff that we've known and loved and has inspired us in our lives. Especially since we're always going through this constant reinvention of rethinking our our history and going back and looking at works and trying to understand them in a in a deeper way of understanding them in the context of the culture of the time. It's going to be really important as we continue to go through this, you know, nationwide, you know kind of reimagining of our own history to a certain extent to try and make better sense of it. The the artistic works are one of the most foundational pure texts we have to try and make sense of that. That's a really excellent point. I wonder how much of the work it already has started to write because the internet is multimedia intrinsically in terms of, you know, the tools you have creatively to make a thing. Mm-hmm. Um and already the practice, it inherited a practice of sampling and remixing and so on. And is, you know, as we've talked about in different ways already on the podcast in different episodes, accelerated and extended and elaborated and developed that practice, uh, most specifically in an episode from Musique Concrète to Plunder Phonics, which I highly recommend. Our favorite, <laughs> our it, favorite title. <laughs> it's probably always going to be my favorite title. It's just got really great, obscure words in it. Uh, ridiculous words, plunder phonics. What a great, perfect, uh, uh, ridiculous words like shot and tip to whoever coined it. <laughs> uh, I we did we say who coined it on the uh, we did yeah composer <laughs> whose name just fell out of me. But anyway, to your point, Anthony, which I thought was was uh, really really uh, excellent. I, it's going to be interesting to see how much as we get our hands on more and more of primary source material, creative work like you said, trying to understand it, understand it in its context and understand it from our context becomes like anthropological in yeah, that sense. Really, it does. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as it is creative, we're trying to, I mean, I mean, I, all creative art to an extent is us expressing, trying to understand and express ourselves to us. Yeah. But this really taps but, into something that was so foundational to the culture. I mean, like American movies, what, what can you get that was more ubiquitous? Everyone would go see right. all of the same movies. But it's also for anything Poems, novels, stories, uh, uh, music of any kind, even composed concert music, 1922, 23, 24. Any other things in the article? uh, It does. Hold on. I'll tell you something. But remember, 1921 is the year that RCA brought the Victrola to market, which was the first mass market consumer phonograph. Mm -hmm. So people were just getting record players in their homes. So we're just now going to get every year as the clock ticks into the public domain, the first works that were created at the dawn of mass media. Mm -hmm. And that's where the way we make our creative work, not just the medium, like not just the thing itself, but like, like, you know, we're talking around here. 
what it's made of and what we're thinking about and what we're that that all starts to really shift through the 20s so it's not just the substantial work it's the evolution of the practice itself yes and the medium is the message and so that's what influences all of us more than anything so some some other things he mentioned specifically in the article we have the start of the the harlem renaissance gene tumor uh breakthrough novel uh kane you have noel coward uh, staged his first musical, which was a big hit, London Calling. It comprises hundreds of thousands of books, musical compositions, paintings, poems, photographs, and uh, films. So <laughs> I love the example he gives. Any record label can issue a dubstep version of the 1923 hit, Yes, We Have No Bananas. <laughs> uh, any middle school can produce Theodore Pratt's stage adaptation of The Picture of Dorian Gray. And any historian can publish Winston Churchill's The World Crisis with her own extensive annotations. Are the, for instances, added in the article. <laughs> so if that didn't come through the microphones, Lissette just piped in to say, also being released uh, into the public domain, uh, the 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 hit song yes we have no bananas there was also the yes I got no bananas blues was that the name I, of the track I got the, I got the yes I got no bananas blues I got the yes I got no bananas blues <laughs> okay if you're giggling like Sir. we are over here just imagine what you know fun people are gonna have taking stuff like that and pulling it into our time and place and and making things uh, with it. So I think it's cool. Check out the link, that article, and just watch uh, starting. You're going to start to see it'll be subtle at first, but every year, so, you know, a year from now, it's going to be 1924, 25, 26, 27. When we hit 1926 in music is when stuff's going to go crazy because that is an incredibly important creative year compositionally. But that's probably a topic for another episode. Very important for quantum mechanics, too. It's right in between the when they discover matrix mechanics into the Schrodinger equation, 25 to 27. Good years. Stuff's getting interesting, man. Another interesting thing that happened. Hamilton. In case you it's, didn't know. You may, there's a musical. You may have heard of it. We feel like, you know, it's just, you know, you can't end the year without talking about Hamilton again. So this is actually one I heard about from my mom because my mom loves the Kennedy Center Honors, which is an award that's been given out uh, since the 60s. This was started by JFK, one of the most prestigious honors that we can give our artists in America. And for the very first time, we are going to be awarding it to a work instead of just an individual, which is a very interesting change. And seems a little weird at first because we think of creative awards you know awards for creative work honoring the people who made them right because you can't honor a thing it didn't do anything hamilton doesn't do anything it's a made thing you know but the article that we link to on uh the website from the washington post that discusses this award i thought framed it perfectly the kennedy center is trying to acknowledge uh articulate draw attention to the fact that there has been a profound cultural shift because of the nature of our tools, the way we make creative work, especially creative works that have uh, that find large audiences and then have wide influence, like the kind of people they honor with these awards consistently. Uh, and of course, we should say not just in music, if you're not familiar with the award, uh, uh, but it's creative uh, uh, 
people of all kinds. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you can work in almost any medium, really. Uh, but almost always popular media of some kind, uh, uh, audience-facing creative work. Uh, so what they are acknowledging and trying to do is saying that the nature of contemporary creative work in a lot of these modes, mediums of uh, making things, like a musical, a Broadway musical, is so uh, complex, so multi-layered, so multifaceted, that it requires a group of people. No one person really can produce it, but and our practice is collaboration. Works are created collaboratively in a real fundamental way, and they're trying to acknowledge that shift. And I think it goes along great with the general networking of the world and of our artists as people are all starting to connect with each other. We realize how synthesizing these different elements together can create work that supersedes anything an individual could make by themselves. And Hamilton, as this blend of history and art and blend of different musical styles and high and low and everything, it is such a perfect piece to, to represent that type of artistic shift. And it's very true. And as they point out uh, in the Post article, they use the scene uh, for Satisfied uh, in the musical, which is the most striking, complex, uh, jaw-dropping scene in the show. Emotionally affecting. But certainly, and, and one of the most, of all those things I've ever seen on stage, full stop, of any kind, of any kind of production, of anything, live, rendered right in front of me in real time, in physical space. It's amazing. And they talk to uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda in this article who describes his reaction when he was finally kind of done with the show. I mean, obviously in the creative process, but also as the performer and so on, and had moved on to other projects, handed it off, the touring companies were going and so on. When he finally got to sit in the audience and just take take in Hamilton as a thing. See it as an outsider for the first time. He describes his reaction in the article of, of, of just how knocked out he was with the scene and satisfied. And they use that. They describe it's a behind-the-scenes thing on the creative process of creating that particular moment in the musical. To illustrate what you said, it's not just out of technical need, expertise, or complexity that you have to collaborate. It's that the works we want, the way our cultural perspective is so huge and mixed not just like geographically you know like in time reaching back in time too not just across cultures uh that everybody has so much to bring to the table to make this gumbo and we want our work to encompass the whole world now yes and so it's it, it it it's better and 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 resonates more dare i might even say art for the globalists when, when when it is when it is more collaborative and of course as musicians you know you and I this is a, I mean this is how we we this is the world this is our world I mean music is collaboration uh, almost all of the time uh, even if I as a conductor take a work from a composer that's a finished work in the sense of being composed there's a lot of creative work I have to do and the performers the players have to do to render it in a convincing and compelling way um, so it's really cool to see this award get reframed like philosophically conceptually and saying it's it's i mean are we finally moving past the albatross from the romantic era of the great artist the hero artist the great man myth 
And, and it's like, no, the greatest things we create, we, we create collaboratively. Yeah, I think it's definitely a, a sign of the times and it opens up really great possibilities for works going forward. I think this may give us the ability to, you know, award really high quality, you know, film works or something like that. Because that's what I always have thought of as the pinnacle of a collaborative artistic type work. Would be television like show. That. Yeah, a season television of a television show, show yeah. mm-hmm. which, you know, they they never even try to award with film and TV the whole thing. Ever since there have been Oscars, it's the actors and the producers and, the, you know, you award different facets of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can recognize that one aspect of a film was, while the whole film may be excellent, the cinematography was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, one person's work can stand out, but uh, it's a cool shift. I'm, I'm really great for them. The four, uh, it's, it's the, uh, uh, the choreographer, Andy Blankenbuehler, writer uh, and actor Lin-Manuel Miranda, music director was Alex Lackamore, and the director was Thomas Kale, uh, the four who are uh, the lead authors, primarily responsible for Four horsemen. <laughs> The Hamilpocalypse. Of the of the awesomeness, not of the apocalypse. Okay. Uh, Anthony, you went to a couple shows recently. I had a great weekend of shows. I got you to were see like, so good. So good. Tell us about them. So I saw, first off, our Lord and Savior, Tom York. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I'm going to reject that claim right away, but we're not going to go down that route at all. Yeah, so my favorite band's Radiohead, if you don't know. I'm, like a Tom, I'm not a Tom York atheist, but I'm, I am a Tom York agno- uh, agnostic. That's okay. I can I can take Tom York agnostics. <laughs> <laughs> I'll still sit across a table from you. Yes, we can still break bread. <laughs> and so Tom York and uh, uh, so was Dear York. Evan Hansen was yes. the other show. And okay. then Dear Evan Hansen, which was so beautiful, so timely. It just really hit me very, very hard. I thought that as a work that's trying to talk about today's youth, and what they face that's different from any other generation, I, I couldn't imagine any other work doing it better. The only thing I could even compare it to would be Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade, actually, which I think is another really, really fantastic work about the effect of social media and the effect of, of a networked culture on our kids. So if that's something that you're, you're into and you can handle a, a pretty big dose of sadness along with a lot of, a lot of humor... And a lot of great stuff there. Then I highly, highly recommend it. You'll you will not regret it. Dear Evan Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen. Yeah. And now tell us about the Tom York show. So the Tom York show was Tom York with uh, Niall Godrich, who has produced most of Radiohead's albums and also helps him out with his solo work. And then a, a third person who I'm not familiar with, who kind of did background like bass and electronicy stuff. And so he hopped around from guitar, piano, some laptop things, and it was. All of his solo work, he didn't do any Radiohead tracks, but um, it was a cool mix of some of his more like singer songwritery type stuff and some of his more like really eclectic beat making, like warp influence type stuff. So it definitely felt very unique in that he was trying to have his own artistic, you know, type personality. He's always been really big on the beats. That's what he really loves doing. And so it was cool to see him really be in that zone. That's fantastic. Where, what venue? Oh, it was um, the Bill Graham, Bill Graham Civic Auditorium. Oh, downtown San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, that's really a nice, nice size venue, actually. It's a medium sized. Yeah, it's cool. It's uh, it's fits a fits a huge crowd, but you can still get really close to the stage. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I had an awesome weekend of great art. 
our brief survey of the best music of 2018 lists uh, is five, well, four, four, four lists that we wanted to refer you to. And then one article uh, I wanted to include just because I thought it was uh, a great list, even though it's not uh, a best of like the other four. But uh, as with the other uh, things we've been talking about, each of these is linked from the website. Uh, so the URLs are available there and we encourage you to explore them further because we want to recommend and, and take a look at these four uh, best of 2018 music list because we think they are uh, either intelligently put together or a great method for for aggregating and right and, and putting together information. Mm-hmm. And it gives you a sense of what different different organizations are including in their lists and how they come together and which ones are on some of them. So we have uh, four recommending for you here. The first one is from The Guardian, a UK uh, newspaper, uh, online journalism uh, outfit. Uh, Really terrific music journalism in my experience in writing, particularly one of the few outlets uh, left that uh, writes really well about concert music and classical music, especially new music. Which is pretty rare. But also writes about uh, all kinds of popular music, uh, I think, really well, publishes all kinds of good stuff. Uh, We have the 50 best albums of 2018 from Pitchfork. Pitchfork has definitely been ahead of the curve on a lot of popular music over the last 10 years. Um, whether it's indie rock or hip hop or electronic, they usually have their finger pretty well on the pulse of what's kind of in that transitional period between indie to mainstream. I know they've always kept me hip to a lot of artists that kind of make that transition into the mainstream who've already built up a fairly large independent audience, so they're always good to watch. And we also have uh, for you a link to NPR's Best Music of 2018, and that is uh, in the U.S., uh, where some of our better cultural, uh, rep- you know, journalism and writing, some of the last places, one of the only places still survives. Yeah. Uh, uh, and each of those, with The Guardian and Pitchfork and NPR, are journalists, editors, other critics, you know, uh, mm-hmm. individual folks. Uh, curating, putting together these lists, right? We also have a link to Metacritic, the website uh, Metacritic. Yeah, and this just aggregates a lot of different lists <laughs> all together, assigns them points, and these are great because it shows you the methodology. Like it's, there's no mystery about where their numbers are coming from. They they show you how they how they do the process. So it's cool, and it helps give you a sense of okay, if I really just want to understand this year. I need to listen to just five albums. Like here's, you know, top five. And I like that. Well, <laughs> efficiency. It's interesting to me because it's trying to turn uh, opinion into data. Exactly. Uh, right yes, in it's the a data sense. science project. Uh, yeah. Like Rotten Tomatoes would for uh, movies and TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Metacritics is more detailed. It tries to take in a lot more uh, information and it tries to be more objective about how it assigns a zero to 100 number. Exactly, if yeah. the review or the critic themselves doesn't quantify it in some clear way, uh, which is, and that's where there have been some fair criticism recently of the way that Rotten Tomatoes arrives at its <laughs> magical percentages. Uh, Metacritic, like you said, uh, uh, is uh, pretty transparent, I think, about uh, you know how you're how they arrive at the list and the information you're looking mm-hmm. at and how it's weighted and quantified. So they look at the best of 2018 music critic top 10 lists. And what I like about it is that you can weight it, you know, you can look at it by different 
variables. You can mm-hmm. uh, limit uh, the information that's included. Great so for on. nerds like me. Yeah. So, uh, well, we'll talk about it a little bit more. We'll talk about the results of it, I guess. And then the last one was just something I found a piece from the Atlantic uh, uh, just maybe today or yesterday online. 27 best music moments of 2018. And we may or may not even uh, have time to talk about it, but the link is there. And they just looked at like, you know, it's a video and just different things, not just albums or, or singles or tracks or pieces of music per se. I uh, thought we'd want to share that with you. So those are the five things we're sort of surveying here. Um, uh, I thought it was interesting to me that the Guardian, the Pitchfork, and the NPR lists had as much overlap as they did. Yeah, I would say there's around five or six albums that I think appeared on all three of the lists, and most of the most of the ones we've chosen to listen to were ones that had a lot of that overlap, especially the first couple. The artists and albums that we found uh, a lot of overlap on the list, just to go ahead and mention, uh, kind of all at once, uh, Robin, uh, pop artist Robin Honey. Janelle Monet, Dirty Computer, was in the top, what, three of almost every list we looked at, whether we linked uh, or not. And I would have to say Janelle Monet's Dirty Computer, okay, I didn't talk to Anthony about this, and uh, I sort of moved so I could look at the screen where my notes are better, and I'm not looking at him, so I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to hear in his voice how he reacts. Would the Loose Filter podcast have to say, all things considered, that Dirty Computer it would be our album of the year if we had to pick one? I would concur, yeah. Oh, all right, right on. Yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. That, I went mean, well. the, that went well. The, the math checked out. It, it topped the Metacritic <laughs> list, so, so let's right, go with the right, data. Right. And, and my intuition is also, yes. It's a remarkable work. The only reason we aren't talking about it in play in excerpts here is we've already talked about it on, on at least two episodes recently. It's come up in different uh, uh, contexts. It's a, it's terrific. If you have not listened to Janelle Monet at all, or Dirty Computer in particular, please uh, avail yourself. Uh, Mitski, Be the Cowboy, came up on a bunch of lists. Um, and so did uh, Idols, Joy as an Act of Resistance. And those were ones that didn't uh, particularly strike me. Uh, as with low, double negative, uh, that one came up on a bunch of lists. Uh, uh, I see there, what did I say earlier? I understand their appeal. I, I, I get why people are liking them a lot. Yeah, I think low has had a really great career. I think this album isn't really one of their better ones. It's kind of like a legacy award to a certain extent, oh, I think. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. And... Um, I mean, so I'm sure also people also really like the album. I shouldn't, you know, say yeah, well, not people, everyone, yeah, but people aren't lying about, yeah. you know, what they like. But that was that was my opinion of it. And then um, Casey Musgraves also showed up on a lot of them. I found, and we have not talked about her, and we will be in just a few. Uh, and also, we'll talk a little bit about Robin also because we haven't talked about her. Of course, it was her first album in in quite a while, so we hadn't had an opportunity. I was pleased to note that, uh, thanks to Anthony from one of our earlier Music We Like episodes, Kamazi Washington and the Internet both popped up within the top 10 on on multiple, multiple lists. Uh, So if you haven't listened to the Internet or Kamazi Washington, Anderson Pack made it onto a bunch of year-end lists. Anderson Pack's been doing the rounds. He was on SNL SNL. and he was on, um, what was the other show he was on? I think Colbert maybe or one of those. Well, it was because uh, you talked about him on the podcast. 
It was exactly. That was really. He was. I made completely obscure (laughs) until nobody listened to his music. Uh, I also wanted to point out that as of today, the day we're recording, uh, a little over a week before the release of this episode, The Guardian has not announced the number one of their fifty best albums of twenty eighteen. Uh, their number two is Robin Honey. Their number three is uh, uh, Janelle Monet, Dirty Computer. Uh, and we're going to leave it that way. I don't want to break the suspense. You got to click anything. the link and go to the article. It could be anything. It could be the Shag second album. I hope it is. I hope it is. Uh, there were also some lists. I felt like the Pitchfork list, like you mentioned, they're known for this. They brought for me... The choices that I just heard, heard nothing about, like totally new to me, uh-huh, yeah. on the on the best of list, and oh my gosh, I hear why this is on the best of list, and we'll talk about and listen to uh, Rosalia, and uh, also Tierra Whack. Uh, I thought was cool on their list. What uh, anything else you want to point out about these lists before we start listening to music? I don't think we should start start getting into it. Yeah. Oh, on the NPR link, I did want to point this out. NPR, the link we provided their best music of 2018. Very extensive. It's not just a list, right? It's got uh, all songs considered year in review. It's got the 50 best albums list. Yeah, it's like an overview of the whole year. Yeah, it of has music. 100 best songs. It has all Latinos best of 2018, best reissues, best classical albums, glaring omissions, music we missed, best. Last Latin, um, be, uh, gosh, you know, uh, so it's, it's, it's a lot to go through there too. If you like this kind of content, it's really, um, uh, a terrific, uh, place to go. So that's, uh, NPR's best music of 2018. Again, link is on the website, loosefilter.com. We'll be listening to tracks from eight different artists that have appeared on the list that we were talking about. We'll be listening to Robin, Casey Musgraves. Rosalia, Tierra Wack, Pusha T, and then we'll get into some classical recordings of Leonard Bernstein, uh, Yo-Yo Ma's Cello Suites, and Wet Ink. First up, we'll be Missing You from Robin's Honey. Yeah, this is a straight-ahead uh, pop album, um, and it's the first from her in, what, eight years or so? Yeah, she had or- done some EPs, but this was her first like full album, full artistic project that she had done for, yeah, for eight years since Body Talk, which was her last album that had gotten a lot of hype and a lot of really good reviews as well that I listened to back then, and she had gone through... Um, uh, a major loss which influenced her her new album and eight years you know as a, a pop singer is like you know 30 years in normal human time right that's a, that's a long time to be gone and you are a lot older person to be trying to uh, make music that's played in the kind of places and appeal maybe to the kind of audiences that make up the base that you might be aiming for but it's really fascinating to me because it sounds totally contemporary. Sounds like fully, fully uh, uh, a cutting edge 2018 pop track, 
but the lyrics, and uh, this is true throughout the album, as you mentioned, are are pretty heavy, <laughs> and they, mm-hmm. they're 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 from someone who has seen some stuff and lived through some stuff. Yeah, her collaborator Joseph Mount said that he had to adjust to her emotional transparency while writing, and then he said that he understood it eventually as being integral to everything that she does. That's a really interesting comment because I was about to say about Missing You, this track, what strikes me about it uh, as unique to her sound, it's first of all, it's real shiny and, you know, it's super tech sounding, but it's really very sparse, actually. It's not super busy. The texture is pretty open uh, and there are no more than than a couple of elements happening uh, in the music uh, at any given time. Which so I imagine it, would translate really well to a, to a live space. Oh, for sure, for sure. And gives room for her as the singer to say something kind of heavy, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so not not for being what it is, it's it's surprisingly open and not, not super busy either. Really charismatic album. I mean, not in, I think, either of our wheelhouses really in terms of taste, but a, but a really terrific album. I yeah, because it's hard not to just enjoy like really good well-polished pop music because it it's meant to just hit your, yeah, hit your pleasure it's, centers it's, just it's right, right on if you if you're just not super cynical I mean, about it's like it saying you, a delicious you, get into you know it. a delicious chocolate milkshake really isn't my thing but you uh-huh. know i see how the, i understand it's really delicious and when i drink it you know i anyway uh casey musgraves now you uh had heard uh of her and and were aware of her work and and i was not uh, paying attention yeah this is another one that pitchfork was has been talking about her going back to her last couple of albums and her being in this kind of uh indie pop country kind of wheelhouse to where it was a little bit nashville a little bit indie uh, you know so it appealed to a to a wide variety of people Right, so we wanted to show uh, the breadth and growth in this album. There's something really interesting about the way she created this album that I want to say for just a second. But this is, uh, I think was the lead single maybe, Butterflies from this track. And this shows her as the more Nashville singer-songwriter that Anthony mentioned that you might expect. This is Casey Musgraves. Her album is Golden Hour. This is the track Butterflies. I was just coasting, never really going Staying there sits right in that almost Taylor Swift kind of sound, but not quite there. It's a little bit uncanny valley, right? Yeah, it's, it's, like so, cl- it's so close. <laughs> really well done contemporary Nashville pop. So it's it's not country pop. That's not it's our pop country. It's it's a country flavor, uh-huh. but it's definitely more uh, singer songwriter, right? With with the the style sort of on top of it, but it's got just the edges of it are and there's elements <laughs> weird of the track. And techni- or, electronic you know yeah and there's and there's elements of the track that are a little bit spacier and it is kind of foreshadowing of what other tracks on the album do yeah because as you go through the album the her sound starts to really grow and change you just go a track or two down in the play order on the album and you get this uh track space cowboy no sense in closing the game. 
Lissette nailed it. It's if Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey had a baby. <laughs> and you start to see the music gets, and it's right in the title of the song, Space Cowboy, a little trippier, maybe? And I was fascinated to read uh, earlier uh, in doing a little research uh, about this album that she took LSD during the making of this Having album. Her yellow submarine period. Yeah, on purpose, you know, just to, to, to sort of blow the doors off her perception and uh, get in a creative space. And that makes total sense to me because I feel like as you, as you get into some of the tracks, it is, uh, there's a, at its core, there's a country flavored singer songwriter doing really well-crafted, excellent work, but it's in this increasingly cosmically psychedelic setting, you know, nestled in this uh, uh, sphere of psychedelia. Which is great because if you look at someone like Sturgill Simpson, we already have started to see a little bit of this blending of of country and psychedelic. Um, so I think that it's it's great that other artists are starting to explore this blend. Yeah, and if you uh, a little further down in the album, we wanted to share just a little bit of a third track so you can hear this uh, uh, progression sort of uh, and development. This is a high horse. how instead of taking psychedelics and then making like long trippy space out kind of ambient music it empowered her to make cool dance music that's <laughs> a much better way to go <laughs> and the lyrics as you listen to them are about the kind of things you think about when you're tripping being yeah, how these and, guys talking and, to men just being obnoxious well and how your actions are you know create ripples that go out in the world and you're kind of responsible for those and we all have choices to make about you know blah 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 uh, blah 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 you know all that moral philosophy and so on uh, but I I think she is a an artist with a lot to say she's musically inventive and the album and, and realizes what a huge sound palette she has to play with now exactly and and maybe maybe hopefully is starting to realize what a huge palette she has <laughs> like if this is just the beginning right because uh, as you and I it's the whole it's the whole perspective of the podcast why the name of the thing is loose filter there's so much available in this playground and i'm looking here on the i love that uh uh in the the playlist window on the screen i'm looking at the genre she's classified casey musgraves as country and it's like what what in those sounds just merits that classification yeah i think it's if you were to use that description to a person you would be giving them less information than more you would be misleading them to what to expect from hearing it yes (laughs) yes so uh check out golden hour casey musgraves i also want to mention we mentioned before but i don't want you to forget that we are not listening to 
selections from artists like the internet or Kamasi Washington or Janelle Monet, because we've already done that just on previous episodes recently. That's the only reason they aren't in this uh, uh, things we think deserve special attention here uh, as best of 2018. This next album caught both of our ears right away. It's Rosalia's El Marquier. It's based on a 13th century novel called Flamenca, which was written in a language called Occitan, which was a variant kind of around uh, the Romance languages. It is still spoken in uh, Catalan. So that's pretty fascinating, actually. And the work itself is about a toxic relationship and gender violence and about a man falling in love with a woman and ending up locking her in a tower. So it has a lot of really potent current themes of relationships and gender relationships. How unfortunate that a young uh, musical artist, a young woman, can find such uh, resonance and connection to an 800-year-old poem because uh, uh, people, but many women especially, can identify with the experience and uh, what is expressed in that poem, uh, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant way. The subtext there, aside from all the music and everything specific about this work, I think is her saying, you know, it's an it's exasperation. It's oh my god! I mean, how many centuries are we going to keep doing this to each other? To our oh. Uh, so just that, that takes before you even hear the song, but then she's Spanish and like Anthony mentioned the Catalan culture. Uh, so there's like this huge infusion of flamenco into this music as a musical style, which to me was really intriguing too. So, uh, like you said, the two tracks, the first track, uh, off the album is Malamente. from the hand claps that are the backbone of the the groove the beat on that track that's right out of traditional flamenco if you go see you know if you're ever in southern spain in granada or somewhere and you see a live traditional uh uh, flamenco show that's that's exactly what you'll hear it's it's so cool yeah the percussion drives drives the track in a lot of ways and that's directly from that kind of music and a musical tradition that that uh was around when that poem was fresh you know and so so to fuse the actual music into her music too is you know not just to take the literary work and the thematic connection and so on but she uses it to structure the the structure of the poem provides a structure for the album but then musically she's drawing deep into the roots of her culture back as far back as this poem goes and infusing that into 21st century music that's formidable. That's it's it's a, and she's like twenty five years old, right? Yeah, it's ambitious as as an artistic work. It's wildly ambitious. I love it. Uh, we just a little bit from another track. Um, uh, this is the eighth track on the album, Dimi Nombre. 
Uh, so here's a little bit just to share with you a little more of the sound world of this El Malcarer by Rosalia. <laughs> International pop music is definitely becoming more minimalistic, too. Just like the notches on that dial are getting turned over and over again. Oh, terrific. There's some, we gotta, we gotta go forward. Otherwise, the episode's gonna be three hours long if we talk about all there is to talk about in each of these tracks. Uh, the next artist I wanted to include just because, uh, it resonates for me with the episode we just did on, uh, outsider music. Because I feel like Tierra Whack is kind of an outsider musician. Yeah, but, it's bedroom music for sure. Yeah, but because of the tools that are available, you can make a finished, a, you know, a really high level finished product in your bedroom. And then get one of the main music publications in America to put you on their list. Right. So her album is Whack World. Uh, they, it, oh, I'm looking again at these dumb genre classifications hip hop rack rap maybe i guess it's alternative r&b is what it is on wikipedia i think that's a, a better that's term. better that's yeah. better let's just give it the broader ones that mean less that'll be the better classification i think but her the okay think about this album 15 tracks 15 minutes each track is exactly one minute long 900 seconds and that for her is part of the construction right she is what do we know about tr whack from philadelphia philadelphia she grew up with um attending an arts academy so she's been immersed in art her whole life and she was really into freestyling and just the general hip-hop kind of culture so it makes sense that she's been drawn to making beats and constructing songs in a kind of uh, like clip art almost kind of way and what's interesting to me uh uh that this album it, that it was important to her the structure was important right the 15th on one minute each and that it, the one minute forces her, like these songs aren't, they don't go in my brain to the place a song does. It's almost like a musical thought. So I knew this about the album before I listened to any of the tracks. And I was interested to find how she would make a complete song in a minute. I'm like, man, that's really short. How do you get through and make a complete thought in that structure? And the answer is... They're not really songs in a formal sense. In the informal use of the word, yeah, they are. But they're not in any, you know, strophic form sort of, uh, you know, Yeah, because there isn't really any technical re- designation. There's no real repeating material because it just presents an idea and then does the second thing and then the next track starts. Now, the ideas are coherent. They're fully formed within that minute. Uh, when they do uh, sort of develop or are presented gradually, the pacing within the minute makes sense to the idea. So the little boxes, the material she put in the boxes, it fits. It all works. Um, it's just really, I don't want to use the word interesting because that's such a vague, it's a non-word or it could be a way to not say something critical. But I mean, it's peculiar to me because it's, I've never quite encountered anything like it before, I guess. So this is, I think it's important not to excerpt this because the the length and all, it's built into the thing, right? 
This is the track Hookers from Whack World. One minute, 60 seconds long, uh, T.R. Whack. I'm tired of crying out. You try to buy my love. I'm tired of crying out. You try to buy my love. My love, I So for about 47 seconds, I feel like I'm listening to the intro to a longer track, to a song, like we're hearing the chorus, like as the intro or something. It's about to drop. Yeah, but then that segues directly, like right from where we just ended, that minute, it goes directly into the next track, Hungry Hippo. So instead of getting like a verse, like you might expect, has been set up, uh, the last 10 seconds or so, like it kind of go in a different direction, but uh, this is what you get. It goes directly into the next song. So as you, you know, both Anthony and I were listening to this, we were like, what? So you end up listening to the next minute. And then you, just because you're like, what is, so for one, I found the form, the structure, these little boxes, that imposition made it really listenable out of curiosity, if nothing else, each of the songs individually, super catchy, super interesting and fun on their own, but it ends up feeling like you're getting these snapshots of moments of her day because of what the lyrics are about. They're just about her experience her mundane experience mostly. And so I feel like she's making them feel like pieces of songs kind of deliberately, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And it's worth pointing out that it's now in October, 2018, it was reported that she traveled to Tokyo and has been recording with Meek Mill, Childish Gambino, and that she's also friends with Solange and Vince Staples. So she got into the game very quickly. <laughs> That's really cool to hear, though, because I, I, some of what she does in those minutes, I'm where the album has disappointed me, where Whack World does disappoint me, is that it leaves me wanting more. Than it than it is than each track than it's it almost is like overall. a resume exactly <laughs> boy it really is a business card which you know man look listen tr Wack, if you meant that damn um, but also that's not such a bad thing in a world where she can collaborate and you can be producing content all the time and getting it to folks kind of all the time maybe it's not a bad thing to put out an album that has you know people listen through it and go. Wait, I want more. Where's the rest? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Really wor- very much worth listening to. I see why it popped up on so many lists. Up next, we have Pusha T. He recorded an album with Kanye West's Daytona. Uh, if you did hear about this, you probably would have heard about it because it led to a vicious, vicious feud with Drake. 
Um, he accused Drake of ghostwriting, and then Drake hit back, basically just saying how him even dissing him is going to lead to him getting more records because of how much more popular he is. And then Pusha T went kind of nuclear and said that he has an illegitimate son, that Drake has an illegitimate son. So, yeah, it got really ugly. All artists need to have their Twitter accounts taken away. Yeah, it's it's very much a, a sign of the times <laughs> and <laughs> just, not in just, a good way. <laughs> just make your work. And that's, you know, I really. OK, this is I feel like a, like I'm 150 years old. saying that. I feel so <laughs> like an old fogey saying that. But seriously, man. Um. But why this was one in particular you wanted to feature. What do you love about this track? Um, I really like just the combination of the beat and his vocals because he's such an old school rapper. He goes back to to clips, which if you know, you know, early 2000s kind of club rap, you know, is was a big, big deal. And it's cool to hear it in this updated style. It's like a, you know, like a high resolution version of it kind of because it's obviously very influenced by his old style and his old flow but takes the new tools that a producer like Kanye has and makes it very very current this is the track uh Pusha T the album's Daytona the track this is from the track The Games We Play drug dealer benzes with gold diggers in them and elevator condos on everything I love this ain't a wave or a phase, cause all that shit fades. This lifestyle's forever when you made. They tweet about the length I made them wait. What the fuck you expect when a nigga got a cape and he's great? Ovens full of cakes that he bakes. Still spreading paste. The love just accentuates the hate. This is for my bodybuilding clients moving weight. Just add water, stir it like a shake Play amongst the stars like the roof in the wraith Get the table next to mine, make our bottle servers race It's amazing to me that we're far enough away from the first decade of this century that his verbal style sounds like uh, Like a throwback, yeah Like a throwback, Uh right? That's a 10, 15 year throwback uh, the joke when we were listening to this, this won't be on the final cut of the episode. We were listening to the track here while we were recording. My my lyric to add was, "I think it's 2004," and that's not an insult at all. It's just that it is really stylistically uh, noticeably a throwback, and it sort of makes me feel uh, a million years old that we're far enough away from mid 2000s mm-hmm. that you can you can hear that you can hear the difference stylistically. Uh, great track. The beats are really lively. Uh, and full of a diversity of sounds, I think. It's a fun album. Yeah, it's got a cool, almost like, that guitar sound reminds you of Modest Mouse almost a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it is an interesting gumbo. Uh, I wanted, there are three more uh, albums that we wanted to share with you on the best of list, and they're normally uh, segregated out into different lists in different sections and of websites or parts of whatever, newspapers. But, of course, it's right on uh, the title of ours, the Loose Filter podcast, so we aren't going to separate it out. Some of the favorite concert music recordings uh, from this year. Uh, I personally, and I know Anthony is a lot the same way, am not interested in recordings of most historical music, you know, music that gets beyond maybe 50, 60, 70 even years ago, which is not that long ago in the world of, of concert or classical music, but uh, it, it's got to be some 
you have to have done something amazing with Vivaldi for me to want to be interested in new, your new recording <laughs> yeah, of the, the Four, four seasons, seasons. You don't say. <laughs> right. Now, having said that, a few years ago, uh, uh, Dutch violinist uh, Janine Jansen did release a recording of Vivaldi's Four Seasons that blew my mind. Is amazing. Is now my benchmark recording for it. Yeah, because usually either it subverts the... That what you expect, or, or it or does tradition. the scholarly yeah. research to find like how it was supposed to be done in the first place. Right, right. Or the other one is it is so amazingly good that we haven't had a rendering of that. You know, uh, like uh, it was a while before we got a, some really great, great high definition recordings of the Rite of Spring. You know, we had Leonard Bernstein had a landmark 1974 one, but that was an analog recording. So that kind of stuff. But we worked through most of the the big ones a while back in that regard. But uh, there still are recordings of music that maybe hasn't gotten its due or that still rewards continued performance that I think are worth mentioning. And that's, that's the first two. So the first one I wanted to mention is a live recording by the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. It's a terrific recording. And last year, this year, was Leonard Bernstein's 100th birthday. Uh, of course, he passed away in, uh, whew, I don't see if I remember, 1989, I think, 1990. But it would have been his 100th birthday. So many uh, festivals and, and orchestras programmed his music. He was well-known as a composer, but also as a conductor and a teacher of music and uh, television personality and all kind of stuff. But and the thing you yell in that REM song, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, greatest claim to fame. If if you're over a certain age, you do. If you're under a certain age, you go REM. I don't. What is that? Uh, but one place where maybe he doesn't uh, get uh, people don't think of him. He doesn't hold kind of a place in the popular imagination. Is composition for film, which he did do some of. And he did it early on in the medium and was influential um, in a way that I think isn't often recognized. So the Royal uh, Liverpool Philharmonic in their concert uh, performed the suite from the movie 1954, uh, Elia Kazan movie, On the Waterfront. Yeah, I had forgotten that he had done the score for this. Yeah, this, and this is Marlon up. Brando's big star vehicle and one of his most famous uh, film performances. But Leonard Bernstein did the music. And when you keep in mind the perspective that this is 1954, you can hear in the music how influential uh, he was on other composers who came to film subsequent to that. This is from the uh, second movement of the suite. Um, it's uh, uh, from a couple of different moments in the movie, but this is just a little bit of Leonard Bernstein's music from the 1954 movie On the Waterfront. So, 
really exciting, but there's a lot there that I think that helps set the mold for how you can, for instance, take uh, a musical idea, that bum, beam, bum, beam, bum, a motive, and develop it compositionally in a way that uh, reflects the, the mood of a scene or the action of a scene that turns it into, you know, an accompaniment to dramatic action. And like the way that that happens, that you translate a music, a musical idea and have it match the sound and feeling of it match the energy and the kind of action you're seeing on the screen is a set of technical skills that uh, composers had to work out in those first couple of decades. Um, oh, absolutely. Cause it's such a, a of, subtle process um, of requiring being able to think of how to develop the ideas, how to match them to what's happening on screen, and then how to even develop them in tandem with each other. So the whole album I recommend, but if you don't know the music, the suite from On the Waterfront especially, he released a, you know, a, a condensed version of the music to be performed on stage. It really, I think you'll enjoy it a lot if you're a fan of film music, or if you're a fan of Leonard Bernstein, or if you're already a fan of both and somehow haven't discovered it, then have fun with that. But the... Uh, Royal Liverpool Philharmonic's recording is exceptional. It would be exceptional if it were a studio recording or a live recording, you know, stitched together from several performances. One take. This was the concert. It is great. It is great. And they're playing. They just Nailed it. like, I mean, like sparks coming off the strings. It's great. Uh, the Okay, two more recordings, and then we'll leave you. Uh, apologize if this episode's gotten a little long. I, don't think, I think we've kept it pretty uh, low. We talked about a lot. Right? Well, all sorts of things. That's so much to say. These uh, next pieces are ones that I spent a lot of time working with, actually, in, in school. These are the Bach cello suites, and playing the upright bass, there's not a lot of stuff you write for the upright bass, so they give you all the the cello literature and say right it to out. help you develop yeah. it technically of course <laughs> and these pieces i mean these are these truly if there's music that needs no introduction it's probably these these are six uh suites of music that j.s bach uh wrote about 300 years ago stylistically we would put them in the baroque period of western musical western classical composition but they have transcended that for a number of reasons. First of all, a suite. What does that mean? That means that each one is a collection of dance movements, basically little pieces of music based on dance forms. Uh huh. And they all have similar forms to them. So you would have like a certain dance, and then you'd have six different versions of them from each of his suites. Right. So each suite starts with a prelude. Each mm-hmm. suite has a gigue. Each suite has a sarabande. Each suite has a courant. And those are all kinds of dances. They would have particular steps that went with them. And that, you know, the meter and the accent patterns of the music uh, match the dancing, like all of dance music for. Because box music was always functional. Exactly. So the thing about these pieces, though, because they are little collections of dance movement, uh, music. Okay, so dance music is uh, all nearly or is universal in human culture. Yeah. Dance sure. is and music. Yeah. Music is. Dance is, you know, and, and it's a, a natural pairing and, and, and has uh, uh, long since been a natural pairing. So no matter what cultural perspective you come at these suites, these collections of little simple dance movements from, they will ring familiar to you because it's dance music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written for 
one instrument by itself and an old instrument that is a very relatively simple technology, a cello, an instrument that in its form is several hundred years old and relies a great deal on the human, the way the human being plays it, the way that person does it for all kinds of aspects of the sound that come out of it. So it is, while it is not as personally and deeply humanly expressive as the human voice may be, it is one of the instruments, I think, that offers us a, a, a range of link, expression yeah. and sound that is analogous, I think, mm-hmm. a little bit, if you have the technique for the instrument. Uh, but that's true of singing, too. Uh, so, okay, this is what Yo-Yo Ma said about these. Someone who's played cello his whole life is one of the living, ma- one of the all-time great masters of this instrument. He says, box cello suites have been my constant musical companions. For almost six decades, they have given me sustenance, comfort, and joy during times of stress, celebration, and loss. What power does this music possess that even today, after 300 years, it continues to help us navigate through troubled times? And I think that's a great, simple way to say, you know, we've mentioned on the podcast many times, great creative work in any medium of any kind, in any style, whatever, rewards repeated viewing, listening, study, consideration. It keeps giving back to you. And like, you know, layers keep revealing itself. It looks different in different light or whatever. Um, uh, And like Yo-Yo Ma further says, music, like all of culture, helps us understand our environment, each other, and ourselves. Culture helps us to imagine a better future. Culture helps turn them into us. Uh, And these things have never been more important. So what he did in this album, Six Evolutions, is he returned to the Bach cello suites and went back to where Bach wrote them and they were originally performed in Leipzig and played them in the church, in the space. And his first recording was back in 1983. So we're listening to just with one individual, almost four decades of growth and evolution uh, with these pieces. But then with these pieces, hundreds of years of human experience and it's become like this thread that we keep returning to and passing forward and passing forward to to pack our experience in it like a time machine a little bit mm-hmm. yeah am i waxing too poetic about this you can't uh, wax too poetic about Bach. <laughs> <laughs> and so i think the open simpleness of the cello itself a wooden box with four strings that you draw a bow across one person, unaccompanied, and music that's just a little modest, unassuming music, a little collection of dance suites um, that not only allows us that thread to feel back across not just 300 years, but everything in between, because we've been playing that music and sharing it since, but within this artist's life and for us, it, it helps us what do we still have to learn by experiencing this that can help us cope with where we are? So just a couple of excerpts. The first is from the first suite uh, for you aficionados. That's the BWV 1007. Uh, this is the very famous prelude. Uh, and then I wanted to share from the sixth cello suite, the Quran, the third movement, uh, without any further comment. So this is a little bit of Yo-Yo Ma's Six Evolutions, the Bach cello suites, the prelude from number one, and the Quran from number six. Thank you. 
for this episode, I wanted to highlight uh, a new music ensemble. It's been around for uh, 20 years who are phenomenal. Not like a bullseye for me in terms of, 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 of taste or uh, the kind of things that they pursue, but always compelling, always interesting to listen to, and always absolutely uh, phenomenal and uh, compelling music making. So this group, Wet Ink, is the new music ensemble. And to celebrate their 20 years, they released an album called 20. Very convenient. And, and it, I wanted to include it on this list because I think it offers one of the most fun and unexpected listening experiences I found uh, this year. This is the first track off of their album, 20, their 20th anniversary celebration. It's called Auditory Scene Analysis Part one. of simultaneous auditory components. In mixtures of sound, the auditory system must decide which component frequencies should be treated as arising from the same source. When we look at the spectrum of the mixture of sounds, we find the spectrum I love that, and it reminds me of a lot of the metal music that I used to listen to, like mathcore kind of stuff, where it was the craziest possible rhythms and time signatures and super dissonant harmonies and melodies that were just all kind of layered on top of each other with crazy guitar sounds. And it was just like this, but this is that, but with acoustic instruments. And I I love that there's that kind of crossover there. And the precision that is required to play that. Yeah, because you play it for most people and they would hear it and they're like, oh, that's interesting, but they really think it sounds like nonsense. But it's if you really listen to it, the amount of detail and complexity and precision required to play something like that and play the same way every time is it's insane. And what was interesting to me about this piece and about much of the work on this album and that what Inc. does is the uh, when I mentioned it's not uh, 
it doesn't hit my target necessarily the kind of sounds I go for in my taste as a, a conductor and an ensemble leader and programmer of composed music. But it is not like, like the kinds of sounds that piece made start. You have to listen to it for a little bit before the experience of them starts to have the intended effect. You know what I mean? It's not in, just yeah. about the kinds of sounds they are. You have to let it kind of wash over you to a certain extent. Exactly. And you have to let the larger thought unfold. And it it offers such uh, a unique and, well, like a lot of the artists we talk about all over the place and, and folks we featured on this list, they are at the same time familiar, but also completely unexpected mm-hmm. somehow, right? Uh, and so we'll leave it with that. I think uh, we'll pick a. I think well, let's pick a Janelle Monet track. I think it would be our proper outro track here. Yeah. But that is our uh, uh, best of 2018 and other interesting thing. Uh, other interesting things episode. Uh, this is the Loose Filter podcast. Uh, again, you can find us online at loosefilter.com on SoundCloud at SoundCloud.com/slash/loosefilter. Uh, you can find the podcast feed on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere else you can subscribe via RSS feel free to send us any feedback to uh, loosefilter at gmail.com anything to add for the end of the year Anthony I would say make sure you really enjoy the music we gave you because I heard no one is releasing music in 2019 no more new music this, yeah, is, it's, it. this is it it's done. This yeah, is it. we're done over. we've made all of the sounds is the thing yeah. alright so uh have a great rest of the year, everybody, and we'll see you in 2019. Thanks a lot. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just